I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. I'm Leah Simone Bowen, and this is Podcast Playlist, the show that rounds up the best festive podcasts around. So get comfy. Our annual holiday special starts now. This is the time of year where toy sales are booming, and you might be hoping to buy the popular new toy that's all the rage. A doll that cries, a talking robot, or maybe something that sings? Toys that sing are super popular with kids, but maybe not so much with parents. In fact, this might be the type of toy that you hide in the back of your closet or forget to change the batteries to. But have you ever wondered who writes the lyrics to those weird songs that toys sing? This is something the podcast Every Little Thing wanted to get to the bottom of after a listener named Megan called in about it. Here's Megan and guest host Ian Chillog with more. Hi, Flora. This is Megan. I had my son last year in... Man, kids' toys are weird. I listen to these weird songs and voices, and I guess what I want to know is, who writes these songs for these toys? Hello? Hi, Megan. I'm Ian Chillog, filling in for Flora. Hello, good morning. So, tell me about your son's talking toys. How how many of these things does he have? Because we have eliminated quite a few toys, we're currently probably around five. There's something sinister about the way you said eliminated just now. (laughs) What did you do to these toys? Uh, You know, some of them are just hidden, but the rest have been donated to another unsuspecting family. (laughs) Did your son have a favorite talking toy? Like one that he'd notice if you... Snuck it away? Yes. Steve, the SUV. Tell me about Steve. It's a green SUV that looks like a Jeep. So it's a more rugged SUV, not not like the mom SUV that I drive. Okay. It's got a big grill in the front and then an orange windshield with Steve driving. Hands on the steering wheel at 10 and 2. Steve is very safe. And my son just became obsessed with this toy and he wanted it in the car, in the house. And so I'm just hearing it in my head over and over S is for SUV, which killed me because S is for sport and sport utility vehicle. What are some other things Steve says? So the big one, I mean, there's a few different variations on this toy, but the one that's always in my head is off-roading in my SUV is really wonderful. Having fun in my sport utility vehicle. (sighs) It's a very annoying song. How many times a day do you think you hear it? I mean, I would say probably five to ten times an hour. Oh, my God. Yep. 
Okay, let's get a baseline assessment here. Rate Steve's song on a scale of 1 to 10, with 1 being hire an assassin to kill it and 10 being hire a band to play it at your wedding. <laughs> uh, you know, my son, it might be his wedding song. <laughs> yeah. uh, but I, I think as a parent, it's like a one or a two. So I could just assassinate and pretend it never happened. <laughs> All right, so what do you want to know today? So the first thing I wanted to know was who's behind it. And I guess I'd want to know the people that do the lyrics and songs. Do they go to bed at night with them stuck in their head too? Because I would imagine they have to. Well, we talked to perhaps the only person in the world who can answer your questions. Hi, Megan. Hi. This is Jay Elkington. He works at the toy company VTech. And he wrote the script for your son's SUV. No. Oh, yeah having fun in a sport utility vehicle. Um, I'm a rugged SUV. It's really fun to drive. He sounds so great. Jay's portfolio does not end with Steve the SUV. He's written the words and lyrics for more than 100 talking toys. Monster Slash! Apples make me feel good like they knew they would. Beep, beep, beep. Let's go hit the road. Monster Hungry! You like me? Oh, man, I don't know how you ever clear your brain of that. (laughs) So you wanted to know how Jay's toy scripts come together. Yes. Okay, well, Jay told us three key rules that toy script writers live by. And the first one is keep it short. Because with our chip sizes in our items, we're limited to the amount of states that we're able to put in there with voice, sound effects, etc. Like for the SUV... Jay had 120 total seconds to work with. That's it. I mean, I, the way I look at it is almost like like writing a quick poem. Okay, that's how I kind of thought of it. Yeah, it's like a it's like a haiku. Yes, I feel like in elementary school you always had to write haikus for everything. I guess then tell me how you feel about Steve, but in the form of a haiku. Oh wow. Okay, is it five seven five? That's right. Seven? Yeah. Okay. Oh. Steve, the SUV, loves to drive his vehicle. Please turn it off now. Wow. That was beautiful. Thank you. So keep it short. That's the first rule of toy writing. The second rule is stay in the shallow end of the thesaurus. So it's like for this one, the SUV is, I'm Steve, I'm a sporty SUV. So like sporty is something that a kid can understand. When I first started, I was putting in things like, uh, if you have a hamster, like I'm a hilarious hamster. You're like, ugh, hilarious is a little bit too much. I gotta figure out to do something else. I mean, it makes sense. So this gets us to the third and final rule of toy writing, avoid words on the list. We have a list of things to stay away from. Oh. Because we all know that there are words out there that do sound similar to other words. For example, my cousin that used to say truck, but it never sounded like truck. Um, It always sounded like something else. (laughs) So can't say truck. What the truck is up. (laughs) Once Jay has his PG poem written, 
Another team in Hong Kong comes up with the music, and Jay has the perfect test audience to try out his material on his own children. I'm the dad that walks around singing all the time or does voices all the time around the house. What's an example? Um, so my one daughter's name is Blair, and I always sing to her, Blair, she farts and toots and toots and toots. Blair, she farts and toots and toots and toots. Blair, she farts. <laughs> okay, I make up so many songs for my kids, so I really relate to that on a deep level. Okay, tell me one. I have to hear one. Um, so my son, his name is Lincoln, but we often call him Slinky. And I've started singing, Slinky Dinky Do, I Love You. And that's all I've got so far. It's a great, it's a great start. (laughs) (laughs) From Spotify and Gimlet Media, that was Every Little Thing. That episode was guest hosted by Ian Chillog. Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol is a Christmas Eve staple in many homes. But when you think about the legacy of Dickens, it's a bit surprising that we associate him with the holidays. For much of Charles Dickens' writing career, he wrote about the plight of the working poor and the destitute members of British society. In this episode of The Illusionist, host Helen Zaltzman asked the question, how did Charles Dickens' name become associated with the rosy-cheeked, full-stomached, fattened goose, hearty merry, God bless us everyone Christmas. The Christmas Carol wasn't his first Christmas story, but it was such a hit that, like Mariah Carey re-releasing All I Want for Christmas is You, each year afterwards there was pressure for Dickens to keep supplying festive material. His other Christmas stories, uh, The Chimes, The Cricket on the Hearth, The Battle of Life, um, The Haunted Man and The Ghost's Bargain... He also writes in Household Worlds, which is his sort of magazine. He'd be working on stories for the Christmas edition of the magazine from July of each year. There's the Christmas tree, a Christmas dinner. There's a very sad essay written in 1851, the year in which four of his family members die, called What Christmas Is As We Grow Older, which is a kind of tribute to them, but also a calling out in defence of Christmas and saying Christmas is about looking forward and hope and hoping for a better future, while at the same time remembering those who've gone before. So he returns to Christmas many times in his career. And indeed, A Great Expectation starts with a Christmas scene, but none of those matched the success of A Christmas Carol. A Christmas Carol is by far and away his best, his most defiantly popular and most influential Christmas story How many other books have been adapted hundreds of times for film and TV? The popularity of A Christmas Carol has never waned. It was an absolute smash hit straight away. It was published on the 19th of December 1843, and by Christmas Eve it was already sold out. The next year the book was adapted several times for stage and reprinted and reprinted. It has never been out of print. Dickens did public readings of the book in Britain and the US until his death in 1870. Some authors' work sticks so much in cultural consciousness, their name becomes an adjective. Kafkaesque, Orwellian, Dickensian. Well, Dickensian is a a very, very broad idea. Uh, There's an incredibly uh, vast canvas of what we think of as Dickensian. And even though we use it as a word, 
that word itself has so many different interpretations and meanings. Men with mutton chop sideburns and stovepipe hats, women with hearts of gold and tragically short lives, orphans fending for themselves while menacing adults lurk around every corner, please sir, I want some more, and Christmas, Merry Christmas, Christmas goose, Christmas ghosts, God bless us everyone. Dickensian is quite a tricky word actually, and I think we don't always necessarily know what we mean when we say it. As a word, it kind of conjures up Poverty, perhaps, a sense of squalor, a sense of people trapped in this sort of brutal society where there is no safety net, there is no fallback plan, where children and young women can suddenly be cast into a life of poverty or crime or violence. But Dickensian also really should sum up some of the beautiful things, some of the wonderful things he harnesses. You know, when we look at A Christmas Carol, the way he depicts the street scenes and the sort of children and people singing and saying hello to each other, the sense of community, the um, the shop windows uh, filled to the brim with delicious goods and um, treats to eat on Christmas Day and toys in the window. You know, this is a also a bountiful um, visual iconography, Dickens conjured up both quite alarming and also quite um, enrapturing, uh, entrancing visions of what a city and a community could be. So Dickensian tends to be quite negative, but it, it really should, I suppose, apply to all of the different uh, worlds that Dickens created. And, and some of those were rather pleasant and lovely, and some of those were rather cruel and dark. Yeah, like, what's his deal with Christmas? Dickens? Yeah. Yeah. A lot of authors have written about Christmas, but don't have festive fairs devoted to them. Why does Dickens get to be the adjective? Why is he given credit for Christmas? You know, one of the things people often say is that Dickens invented Christmas, which is absolute nonsense. Of course he didn't. Charles Dickens's Christmases are not brand new in 1843. He perpetuated some traditions. He... Uh, he reinvigorated others. There had been Christmas for centuries. There had been traditions that he had grown up with as a child that he perpetuated and shared in his books. Singing, feasting, charitable donations. That's all medieval, Tudor, Stuart, Georgian, whatever you want to call it. So Dickens is not the architect. He's a cheerleader. Very different professions. (laughs) Well, maybe, maybe so. I mean, they both build large structures, don't they? The Christmas Carol landed at a time when there was a trend for nostalgia. The 19th century is an era where you have many folklorists and antiquarians taking an interest in the old ways. There is definitely, in the 19th century, this idea of a mythologised past, of uh, the Tudor era being the sort of halcyon days. Just as we have Dickensian festivals in San Francisco and we look back to the Victorians, the Victorians looked back to the Saxons and the Normans and the Tudors as a kind of glory days of simplicity where the good old days of Christmas were were much more pleasant. And Because in, in some ways the Victorian Christmas is a reaction to industrialization, the trauma of enormous economic thrust of people moving from the countryside into the cities, of communities being broken up, of dark satanic mills, of factories, of trains and industry, of the British Empire expanding and people being separated by huge geographical distances. Not only that, A Christmas Carol was riding a wave of renewed interest in Christmas. So along with the revival of older festive customs, there were new ones emerging that decade too. Christmas cards were suddenly logistically viable with the invention of the penny post in 1840. 
Christmas trees also became popular around then. King George III's German wife had introduced them to Britain in the late 1700s, so they weren't completely new, but they were newly fashionable when, in 1848, Queen Victoria, Prince Albert and their children posed in front of theirs for the Illustrated London News. So quite a lot of traditions, what we think of as traditions now, that we assume are Dickensian, they're not Dickensian. They just arrived at exactly the same time through pure coincidence and it's all mushed together and this Victorian festival suddenly feels like it's this brand new thing. But it's not. It's a continuity with some extra additional elements and um, the capitalism ramps it all up. Christmas is a commercial economy without parallel. It's incredibly capitalistic. It had been for a while, but in the 19th century it becomes more so. And you see the emergence of Christmas magazines, Christmas books, Christmas toys for children, which is a new market that's just sort of opening up. But Dickens's main intention wasn't to cash in on Christmas. I mean, he did need the money, though he had had considerable literary success the previous decade. Lately, the serialisation of his novel Martin Chuzzlewit hadn't been too popular and his income was looking dicey. Plus, he had a growing family to support and was often bailing out his parents and siblings too. And Dickens did sincerely love Christmas. His children wrote about the relish with which their father approached the festivities each year. But that wasn't the primary motivation either. Instead, his heartwarming Christmas fable was the cover story for a political mission. He was a man who had a tremendous political appetite and who was of the middle classes and, of course, befriended the upper classes, but was always on the side of the working classes. And this, of course, was largely because he'd experienced poverty as a child. Dickens was the second of eight children in a pretty close family and had what he considered to be an idyllic childhood until he was aged 11, whereupon his father, who regularly had financial problems, was sent to prison for debt. And as was custom at the time, Dickens's mother and younger siblings moved in there with him. For a year, Charles Dickens lived alone. He had to quit school and work 10-hour days, six days a week at a boot-blacking factory. Though the family did reunite, the experience stayed with Dickens, informing much of his work and political attitudes. He is a man who's always championing those who've had a, a less fortunate life. He campaigned against public executions. He thought they were vile and grim. You know, he campaigned for, for women. He campaigned for better schooling for children. He's a man who, who uses his voice uh, as a campaigning tool. Though in the Victorian era, Britannia ruled the waves, coloured the globe pink, etc. At home, many people were destitute. The Industrial Revolution had ushered in such huge societal and economic changes that century, but welfare and health services had not been instituted yet. And Dickens was horrified by the poverty so many people were stricken by in 1843, particularly the conditions children were living in, on the streets, in schools for the impoverished, working down mines or in factories, as he had done himself. And he was desperate to make a palpable difference. As a journalist, he planned to write a political pamphlet about it, entitled An Appeal to the People of England for the Benefit of the Poor Man's Child. But he realised that not many people would read a political pamphlet, they would, however, read his fiction. And as a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down, Dickens coated his plea for social justice with a feel-good Christmas ghost story. From Radiotopia and PRX, that was The Illusionist. It's hosted and produced by Helen Zaltzman. 
This time of year can make us feel nostalgic. We remember the traditions and foods from our childhood. And that's what inspired me to look into a favorite childhood food of mine, the puff wheat square. Ever tried one? Well, it's a sweet treat made out of cereal, and it has a really interesting history. When candy maker A.J. Russell created a recipe for puff wheat bars in 1913, it became a popular dessert, but only in one half of the country. In this episode of The Secret Life of Canada, the podcast I co-host along with Phelan Johnson, we look at why the western half of the country lives for puff wheat squares and why often the rest of Canada has never even heard of them. Happy holidays. The recipe was invented by Alan J. Russell, a candy maker in Red Deer, Alberta. He had moved from the Maritimes and opened a candy store in Red Deer in 1913. Uh, it was a popular store and was well known for the all-day sucker and coconut <laughs> brittle. So, you know. Ca- it, candy it was of, of the time. Candy of the time. Candy of the time. Right. Of the time. Um, things were going well, but then World War I broke out. Okay, and then things started getting tough. Yeah, especially in the farming world. Uh, A lot of farmers were leaving to go to the front, and their climate also wasn't cooperating. Yeah, actually, I do know about this. In the early 1900s, it just wasn't a great time for crops, Mm -hmm. and that might have something to do with the puff wheat origin, I'm assuming. But how would I know this, Phelan? Well, I found a book at a yard sale called A Wheatland Heritage, and it was written by Vernette Armstrong, an early settler who lived in Saskatchewan. And it's really all about the early 1900s, uh, the colonization of the West, that's what Chapter 2 is called, and wheat, of course. I can't believe you bought that, but I can because it's you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it was a dollar, and one never knows when one will end up doing an episode about wheat. And here we are. Okay, that is The point of this, though, the point of this, though, is that the author describes farming the years right before the war as as really bad. And then when the war broke out, they had a total crop failure in a lot of, you know, the West uh, in Canada. And then over in Europe, you know, they were also struggling with crop production during this time. So in terms of grains and wheat, things were really bad. Right. Europe could not feed their population and was heavily relying on imported food. So things were being sent overseas. Also, a lot of Canadian farmers were leaving to go to the front lines and fight. So things that had a long shelf life, they became really important. Things like crackers and cereals. There's a whole category of recipes that have been created out of having, you know, limited food supplies. There's this one recipe called mock apple pie. I don't know if you've heard about Mm -mm. it, but it's where the apple pie filling is actually made out of saltine crackers. And there are actually no apples in it. Oh, God. And it's good. What? It's Yeah, it's good because of the way that they, like, they do a whole thing with the spices and they add a bunch of things. It is thought to have been created by early settlers, and then it became popular during the Great Depression and the Second World War. Where did you eat this pie? I mean, it's a long story, but I had a lot of, like, old old ladies who were my babysitters that used to, like, babysit the the kids in my neighborhood. And I remember one of them made it and told us, like, this is this old wartime recipe. It, w- it did taste like a fruity pie. It didn't taste like apple pie, but I remember I was, I, I just remember it. 
So there were lots of recipes that were being created out of not having the right ingredients and 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 needing something to be preserved, you know? I'm not really surprised that you have all this wheat and cereal knowledge, Leah, but it 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 still impresses me. It's finally good for something. Yes. Okay, so all of this leads up to the creation of processed food, a quest to make food substitutes and items less perishable. The invention of cereal and their popularity had started happening in 1894. The creation of flaked cereal is credited to brothers Will and John Kellogg and Ella Kellogg, John's wife. Oh, so cornflakes go way back. Yeah, all the way back. John Kellogg ran a bunch of health spas for rich people. He advertised the spas with the idea that to be healthy, one must have a bland diet. Uh, One really weird aspect of the story of cereal is that John Kellogg believed that the blander the diet, the more inclined a person would be to abstain from sex and masturbation. Oh, well, this is taking an unexpected turn. Okay, well, I thought he was married. He was, but accounts say that they never slept together, which is fine. Yeah, whatever. Okay, whatever. The problem was not that John Kellogg didn't want to have sex. The problem was that he made it seem like anyone who did was a bad person. He strongly believed that to successfully abstain from sex and avoid excitement, a person should never eat meat or spicy foods. Well, cereal fits the bill then, I guess. But also, you know, that belief towards not eating meat or spicy foods, that was popularized well before Kellogg would have taken it on. Maybe he was borrowing from certain Hindu or Chinese beliefs. There's a long history of that. Well, I I don't think so because he was actually um, a huge racist. Um, okay. <laughs> yeah, so he started an organization to prevent the races from mixing. Oh. He was also big into eugenics. And, you know, I encourage people to look up the very strange story of the Kellogg's. But I'm only telling you this to give you an idea of how the cereal craze came to be. Seven years after, you know, I'll make you feel weird about having sex, Kellogg developed the <laughs> breakfast flake. Puffed wheat was invented by a botanist named Alexander P. Anderson in 1901. In an experiment, he filled a test tube with wheat flour and cornstarch and heated it in a 500-degree oven. I already know so many people have done this on YouTube. I can just feel it. I don't even have to look it up. I can feel that people have done that. Okay, I haven't gotten to the best part yet. Okay. He he took the test tube out of the Lord of the Rings style <laughs> oven and then hit it with a hammer. And, and when it exploded, he saw the cornstarch and wheat had expanded in size and shape. And, you know, from the steam and the pressure, it had puffed up the starch. Okay, I got it. I got it. Why would anyone do that? But okay, yes, I see. Understood. Anderson introduced his puffed grain in 1904 at the World's Fair in St. Louis. To make a big splash, he shot the cereal out of eight bronze cannons. Oh, my God. Quaker cereal started selling it and advertising it as the eighth wonder of the world. Uh, The line, the cereal shot out of a gun, became a mainstay of puffed cereal marketing. Take a listen to this Quaker puffed wheat and puffed rice commercial from 1960, where an animated Quaker talks about the cereal. As you know, Quaker puffed wheat and Quaker puffed rice are shot from guns. Uh, We'd like to show you this process. Now in a moment, we will... Just a temporary delay, folks. How you coming along down there? 
remember, Quaker puffed wheat and Quaker puffed rice are slightly flavored because they're the cereals shot from guns. The world of processed food is very bizarre. Yes, but but this worked for Quaker. You know, it's good marketing. You know, it's true. I mean, what kid wouldn't want to eat food shot out of a can and it works? Exactly. Legend says that to bolster sales, they also would put advertisements in newspapers across Canada and the U.S. for puffed wheat recipe challenges and contests. Contests like this were big in the early 1900s. So over in Red Deer, Alan J. Russell reads in the newspaper that Quaker Oats is looking for submissions for new candy bar recipes that have to include puffed wheat as an ingredient. So he decides to put something together. Okay, well, makes sense. But why are you saying it's a legend? Well, our historian Andrea, she searched every newspaper from Alberta in this time period (laughs) and couldn't find an ad for it. So, you know, it, it it doesn't mean it's not true, but, you know, she, she couldn't find one. Right. And this is this is the lore. OK, well, maybe he bought an American paper or something. Who knows? Mm. But either way, he decided to use puff wheat because he would have probably already been trying out different ingredients, either because of, you know, the, the limitations on food that we talked about or possibly just because it was like this new fun processed food. Exactly. So he took a recipe he had created for brittle candy, added some puffed wheat, and instead of sugar, used molasses. You know, and and the original puffed wheat bar was born in 1914. Then it became known as puffed wheat cake. And now a lot of people call them puffed wheat squares. The original was harder, like a candy bar, but the modern version is a bit softer, like a Rice Krispie square. It took off, and the recipe got passed around all over the West and eventually got printed in many recipe books. Yeah, this is the way Canadian recipes became canon. They would be passed around, and eventually someone would compile them into a cookbook and make sure they were preserved. Library and Archives Canada credits the first Canadian cookbook being one called La Cuisinaire Canadienne from 1840 in Montreal. There was another one from 1831 uh, from a guy in Kingston, Ontario, but it was discovered that he actually ripped off an exact copy of an American cookbook and just changed the cover, which is, I'm going to say, very on brand for Kingston. I don't know. I just made that up. <laughs> oh, you shots get it. fired, Kingston. <laughs> Well, there is no mistaking that puffed wheat squares are Canadian. The Western Development Museum in Saskatoon has copies of various old recipe books from all three provinces with puffed wheat bars in them. So why was it so popular in places like Alberta, Saskatchewan and Manitoba and not anywhere else in the country? Well, simply put, if you grow wheat, you seem to enjoy it more than the rest of the country. Alberta, Saskatchewan, and Manitoba were the main grain provinces at the time, and they continue to be. So puffed wheat was also more available in these places than it was in other areas. From CBC Podcasts, that was The Secret Life of Canada. That episode was hosted and produced by me, Leah Simone Bowen, and Phelan Johnson, with sound design and mixing by Braden Alexander. I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? 
you're staring at me like I should say something, but I, I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. Our final story today comes courtesy of the Moth Radio Hour from Atlantic Public Media and PRX. And it's about something that's meant to be at the heart of everything we do this time of year, the spirit of giving. Mark Redman is someone who knows a lot about giving back. He works in a homeless shelter in Vermont. Here's Mark with this story. So I moved to Vermont a little over 10 years ago with my wife and child, and we bought a house in Essex. It's a town about 25 minutes from here. And right before we moved into the house, we took a little walking tour of the neighborhood, and we met a neighbor. And she said, oh, you're going to love it here. There's a lot of little kids. The schools are good. It's safe. And then she asked us a question. She said, are you going to look for a church to join? I thought this was a little unusual to be getting this question. I moved up here from Yonkers, and in Yonkers, they typically don't ask you that. But I thought, well, this is Vermont. Maybe that's what they ask you. It's a little different. So I said, well, we're Catholic, so you will probably look for a Catholic church to join. And she said, well, if you're looking for a contemporary Christian experience, that's my church. That's the church to join. So when you move in your house and you want to learn more about my church, please come over. So we did move into the house, and then I met a different neighbor. And I told her about this neighbor kind of promoting her church. And the neighbor said, oh, yeah, I know what church she's talking about. We call that the Hollywood Church. Every service on Sunday is a big production. It's big screen, multimedia, big extravaganza. I said, okay. And then I met a third neighbor, a guy down the block. And I told him about this woman promoting her church. And he said, yeah, my wife and I went to that church once. We're not going back. That was messed up. (laughs) So so at that point, I'm like, okay, okay, I'm I'm convinced. I'm convinced. I don't need to hear anything else. I'm getting the impression this is one of these feel-good churches, and and that's not me. I, I do go to church every Sunday. I classify myself as a peace and justice Catholic, meaning... To me, if you're going to be spiritual, if you're going to be religious, it's about helping the poor, sheltering the homeless, feeding the hungry, civil rights, saving the planet from destruction, social justice. And the people I've always looked up to are people like Desmond Tutu, Martin Luther King, Dorothy Day, the nuns on the bus. People who really put it on the line. Their faith led them to action, to try and change the world. And that's how I've tried to live my life. I studied business in college. I worked for two years on Madison Avenue. I left that to start working with homeless and at-risk kids. And I've been at it for 32 years. Here, thank you. Here in Burlington, I'm director of Spectrum. We work with homeless teens, kids addicted to drugs and alcohol, kids who are in trouble with the police, kids suffering from mental illness, runaways, and it's really my religious beliefs that drive why I do the work that I do. 
Couple of weeks later, I'm at work, and I get an email. It's an all-agency email from our volunteer coordinator. Because this church, the one I'm talking about, has contacted her because a group of kids there have collected some items to donate to Spectrum, and they want someone to come that Sunday to pick up the things and say a few words to the kids. So my first reaction is, I do not want to be the one to go to this church. I don't, even though I've never been there, I don't have a good feeling about this church. It reminds me of these mega churches you read about. But I'm the director. I live closer than anyone else in the organization to the church. It's like two miles away. I said, I'll go. So I showed up that Sunday, and I went inside, and I'm going in with an attitude. Are you picking that up? You getting that? I'm going in with an attitude. I admit that. I said who I was. They said, yeah, go upstairs. There's a classroom up there. There's a group of kids waiting for you. So I went in. It was like 20, 25 kids. Little, like 9 and 10 years old. So I went, and it was a couple of adults, four or five adults. So I went in, and I gathered the kids around me, and I told them about Spectrum and the work that we do. And they brought up this box, and I opened up the box, and it had sheets and towels and soap and toothpaste. And I remember it had dental floss. Because... <laughs> Because I remember taking the dental floss out and saying, this is good because even homeless kids need to floss their teeth every night. So uh, I'm looking at my watch and I'm thinking, wow, this is great, man. 15 minutes, I'm out of here. And the adult standing right next to me says, Mark, before you go, there's a little girl here named Emily. And uh, she has something special for you. Emily, will you please come up to the front? So this little girl comes walking up to the front, dragging this black duffel bag behind her. And she stands in front of me and she looks up and says, my brother died this year and my family would like to give this to you to give to a boy at Spectrum. So I, I leaned over and I unzipped the bag and it had a lot of the same stuff that had been in the box. It had soap and toothpaste and towels and it had a Bible, a white leather bound Bible and it had a card. So I took the card out of the bag and somebody had written in ink on the front of the, of the card to a young man at Spectrum. So I took the card out and pre-printed on the front. It said, always remember, God is watching over you. And it had a picture of her brother pasted to the inside of the card. Now this girl's like nine years old. I'm expecting to see a little boy, but it's a young man. It's a young guy. It looks like somebody we would work with at Spectrum. And it's got the ages of his birth and his death. And he's 21 years old. And he's handsome. He looks happy. He's smiling in the picture. So I leaned over to the adult who was next to me. And I whispered to him, how did her brother die? And he whispers back, heroin overdose. When I heard that, man, it was like the words ripped right through me. You know? And... It was like something shifted deep inside of me in an instant. And it was one of those times in your life where you see things very clearly, like a, a Zen moment, a moment of awakening. And the first thing I saw clearly was my own blindness, my own foolishness, my own prejudice. And then I saw that, you know, maybe this church is not the kind of church that I prefer or the kind of worship that I would like, but there are a lot of really good people in this church. And some of them 
like this little girl standing in front of me and her family are in tremendous pain. And if this church is where they go to find peace and hope and healing, so what? So what? What right do I have to judge that? So I knelt down and I looked at this girl and I said, you have my word. I am going to give this to the right young man at Spectrum. And I gave her a hug and I left. And I brought that black bag into work that week. And I told the staff the whole story. And I said, we have the perfect person. We took this homeless kid in two years ago. He'd been living on the streets. He's been living at Spectrum ever since. He's done really well. In fact, he's gotten into college. He's moving to Vermont Technical College in Randolph. In a few weeks, he's going to live in a dorm. And he could really use this stuff. I said, great, give it to him. But one condition. I'm going to find the address of this girl and her family, and I want him to write a thank you note. And I know he did that. And I thought that was the end of the story. But it wasn't, because a few months later, I got a letter. I got a letter from the mother of this young boy who had died. And I would get this same letter for the next two or three years in a row. And every letter would start the same way. Today would have been my son's 22nd birthday, 23rd birthday, 20, whatever year it was. And she would enclose a check for $250. And she would write in the letter her son's favorite restaurants. This one she writes, the Little Indian Restaurant on North Minuski Avenue. Nectar's. Shanty on the shore. She would say, please, take a group of your boys out to dinner with this money. In this letter, she writes, the thought of a group of guys going out, having a good meal together, laughing and enjoying themselves will do me good. I wish we could be doing that with my son, but I'm blessed to be able to do this small thing in loving memory of him. The church itself over the last 10 years has been unbelievably generous to Spectrum. Food, donations, money. If I emailed them tomorrow and said, you know, in about a month, it's going to be cold in Vermont, and we have hundreds of kids who need coats and gloves and hats and scarves, our shelves would be filled within a week. That's how good they are. And you know, I did something I never thought I'd do. I went to one of their services. Yes, I did. They're like... They had like a Christmas pageant, a Christmas show. Was it Hollywood? Yeah, it was a little Hollywood. They had singers and dancers and drummers and confetti and the fake snow coming out of the, you know? But it was very sincere. I found it very meaningful and very spiritual. And at the end of the night, they packed my car with wrapped Christmas presents to take back to the kids at Spectrum. Thank you. That was Mark Redman on the Moth Radio Hour. It's produced by The Moth and Jay Allison of Atlantic Public Media and distributed by PRX. And that's our show. I hope these stories helped you get into the holiday mood. If you have a podcast you'd like to share, you can email us at podcastplaylist at cbc.ca. We love hearing from you. You can also find a list of all the shows we played today at cbc.ca slash podcast playlist.
Our show this week was produced by our senior producer, Kate Evans. Our team is Julian Uzielli, Kelsey Cueva, Oliver Thompson, and Lauren Donnelly, with technical support from Lada Antonelli. Our executive producer is Cecil Fernandez. I'm Leah Simone Bowen. Happy holidays to all, and to all, a good night. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.